despotic at worst. Right? That tends to be really what we think of kings. We tend to think kings are pretty despotic. Which is fair, because in, if you think about it, most human kings in history are generally more like Ahab and less like David. And even David had his moments of being very, very, very bad. Just ask Bathsheba. But Jesus isn't a human king. And his kingdom is not a worldly kingdom. He's a perfect ruler. And his kingdom will consummate in perfection and peace and justice for all someday. And so, for what it's worth, we do claim Jesus as our Lord, our citizens in that kingdom. And Paul has something to say about that. We're going to pick up Philippians in verse, or chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of so Paul has moved on from his prayers for the Philippians and his gospel report, right, his missionary report we talked about last week, and how he's been able to, re able to rejoice even in the midst of being imprisoned, to giving instructions on how we are to live as gospel citizens. Let's zoom in on verse, the first part of verse 27. Now, the version I read to you from the ESV, the English Standard Version, says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of that is not that great of a translation. We would be better off to read Philippians 1.27 as only live as a citizen in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is my translation. The OR. <laughs> now, the typical translation of this verse in modern translation says something about something similar to what the ESV says. The word is translated usually like manner of life or conduct yourselves, something like that. However, the actual word, which is retained in the, in the King James Version and I think in, in the older New American Standard Version, the actual word means to live or be a citizen. That's literally what the word means. Its, its root is polis in Greek, which means city. It means to be a citizen. Now, this isn't a word that's in the Bible a whole lot, but it's a common word used in Roman times to denote being a citizen or living as a Roman citizen as opposed to being like a slave. Because remember, Rome had lots of slaves. And Roman citizenship was a big deal because it often had to be earned through service in the military or through paying a large sum of money to the government to become a citizen. 
Now, what I find odd, and, and you occasionally hear me talk about this, and, and when I talk about stuff like this, okay, I'm not trying to say I'm smarter than these really, really brilliant men and women who translate the scriptures and give us our English Bible. Okay, so don't, don't hear me say that. All right? I'm not. But I will be honest with you, I'm going to sometimes just question the interpretive decisions they made when it would have been much simpler to not try to interpret this verse for me, but just to tell me what it actually just said. Especially when, in chapter 3, verse 20 of the same book, where the noun form of this same word is used, almost every English version translates it as, our citizenship is in heaven. So if you're okay with using citizenship in chapter 3, verse 20, why are you afraid to use it in chapter 1, verse 27? These are the things I do not understand, folks. Especially when, if you like pull up 20 commentaries on this verse, every one of them will say something like, now those translators seem to translate this as something other than citizenship, and the word means citizen. Okay, so if all these really brilliant Bible scholars think that, translators should read the commentaries? I, I don't know. Anyway. Dr. Nijay Gupta, in his chapter entitled Living as Good Citizens of the Gospel Kingdom, in the book Living the King Jesus Gospel, explains that Paul may have chosen this word specifically because he was trying to indicate that those who are followers of King Jesus have specific kingdom responsibilities as citizens in how we conduct ourselves. In every major Roman city, like Philippi, major Roman city, there would be constant reminders of what it means to be Roman. Statues of emperors, large civic buildings, soldiers stationed all around, the amazing roads that the Romans built, you know, that you can still use 2,000 years from now, whereas the roads in Cedar Falls that were paved 10 years ago, <laughs> they no longer hardly be used. Right? Okay? the Romans know that we don't. They were reminders of the value and the power and the prestige of being a Roman citizen. And by choosing this politically charged word, Paul is in effect saying, just as you were once good Roman citizens, right, because a lot of the Philippian church would have been Romans, just as you were good Roman citizens at one time, now you need to learn how to be good gospel citizens. Good citizens of Christ's kingdom. Paul's saying that, that we're gospel kingdom citizens, and as such, we're to live in a certain way. Now, you know, we're citizens of America. Everyone in here, as far as I know, is a citizen. You know, we have expectations of, of citizens in America, right? We support our country. We vote. We pay taxes, that sort of thing, right? Those are the things we do as citizens. A good citizen helps other people in their community. A good citizen follows the laws and doesn't vandalize public property. Well, as kingdom citizens, we are also expected to live a certain way. And in fact, Paul here gives us four marks, the marks of a gospel citizen. First one is that we're unified. Look at the second half of verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, 
or chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where it says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, or any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul, twice in this section, tells the Philippians he wants them to be unified. <clears throat> he uses language like, have the same mind, be of one mind, be of one spirit. The Philippian church now, of course, likely contained Jews and Gentiles, free people and slaves, rich and poor. But regardless of any of that, any social status or any, any ethnicity or any other differences that might have been between people in the church, he exhorts them to be unified. Now this unity that he talks about is not some sort of generic pie in the sky, kumbaya, let's all just get along sort of unity. Oh, let's all just Oh, we need our faith. Oh, okay. No, we've got the John Lennon fans here. <laughs> he wants them to be unified on something specific. Paul says that unity is, is based on Christ. He wants them unified in the gospel. He wants them unified in Jesus. He says if there's any benefits for being in Christ, that's the first part of chapter 2 there, and that's actually written in such a way you could really stick the word sense, because we know that there's encouragement and, and that sort of thing in Christ. Then it should result in unity around Jesus. Now, there might be all sorts of secondary issues that we might disagree on. Some of them might be biblical issues, right? You might be an amillennialist, and I'm a premillennialist, and if you don't know the difference between those two, you should come to Wednesday Night Bible Study when we have it, when we talk about such things. And you can learn all about amillennialism and premillennialism and, you know, that sort of thing. Just saying. Throw that up. Maybe, you know, maybe you really prefer hymns. <laughs> yeah. 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 And the see, and Joe's proud of his differences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe the person down a few from you likes some distortion on the guitar, or maybe that's just me. <laughs> but everybody has some issues that are what we might call secondary issues. Some of them are our personal preference. Some of them may come as far as the point of, of conviction. You know, you might be convinced of amillennialism, and I might be convinced of premillennialism. Now, Paul isn't saying those things are wrong. It's not wrong. I'm not wrong. Joe's not wrong. Probably. I guess too, so I don't know. Um, he's not even saying we shouldn't care about those things. But what he's saying is they're not important enough to allow them to disrupt the unity we have around Jesus and the gospel. There's just, there's just no ideal church that's going to check off every box on our personal list of things we want in a church. But one thing we can all enjoy, and that should be part of every church, is that we have unity centered around Jesus and his gospel. When everybody's eyes are on Jesus, we're all less likely to be concerned about the other stuff. Now, not only does Paul want us to be unified around Jesus, he tells us that when we are unified around Jesus, then we can be fearless. Verse 28. <clears throat> and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of them, sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. 
when we stick together around Jesus, we have nothing to fear from any sort of external opponent. In fact, our, our fearless unity, Paul says, is, is an indicator of our salvation and points to the eventual fall of our opponent. This is why, as I've gotten older and I hope slightly wiser, I'm really not interested anymore in cultural wars. Have you ever noticed that the evangelical elites, the ones that always seem to be talking in the news media, always find a new enemy that is somehow a threat to the church and to the gospel and all that is right and good? But every eight to ten years, they come up with a new one. <clears throat> but every other election cycle isn't that interesting. But it's interesting, right? I mean, it's always, always something. That, oh, this church is a threat of the gospel and whatever, right? You know, if the gates of hell cannot prevail against Christ's church, I am not too worried about Hollywood. Is Hollywood often repulsive? Oh, yeah. For sure. The church, unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, is not going to be taken out by Hollywood elites. It's not going to be taken out by certain politicians of either party, or whatever other group happens to be the enemy du jour. And if you look at, at things, there's always an enemy du jour. There's always something. Now, can some of those folks make our lives harder? Oh yeah, sure can. Do they sometimes promote ideals that are against God and his word? Definitely. But you know what? That's not going to take the church out. That's not going to take out Jesus. They should not be things that cause us to fear. And any preacher or evangelical elite or whatever that tries to use fear to gin up some sort of response needs to go back and reread this verse we're not to be fearful. It says, when we are unified on Jesus, there is no opponent that we should be frightened of. Over the last 2,000 years, the church has survived and thrived in some of the worst conditions and most opposed places imaginable. I promise you that some goofy politician or some ultra-left-wing or ultra-right-wing, because they're just as Celebrity is not going to take it out. These people are not cause for fear, and don't let the news media or preachers or, or anybody, people who claim to be spokesmen for Christians, gin up a bunch of fear that somehow this person or this group isn't stopped, the gospel is going to cease to exist and the church is going to die, whatever. Gospel citizens don't live in fear. Because we know, as John tells us, that perfect love, Jesus' perfect love, casts out fear. Now, that's not to say that those who would oppose Christ in this church are harmless. Don't ever hear me saying that they're harmless. I said they're not to be feared. We're not to be in fear, but we also must realize that we should be, as Paul points out, willing to suffer for Christ. Verse 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you 
that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Don't you like that word branded? It's like it's like it's almost like it's a gift. Been granted to you some. I'm not sure I like that. <laughs> Can I send that gift back? <laughs> the one thing I, I, I'm not great with is the word conflict here. The NIV renders this word struggle, which I just think is easier to understand. I mean, conflict is wrong. It's just easier to understand the word struggle. Paul is struggling out there for the gospel. In fact, he's ended up in prison because of it. It's not so much that Paul's in a conflict with someone, it's that he's in a struggle. And the struggles are related to his preaching the gospel, and the Philippians have seen that, and they're experiencing the same thing because they're persecuted in their society for Jesus. That's what he's talking about, that's the struggle, the conflict. Now you understand, when we talk about struggles and conflicts and suffering and that sort of thing, that, that there's two kinds of suffering. Peter outlines them for us in 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. There's that no fear, again. Nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is far better to suffer for doing good, that's what it means, suffering for righteousness' sake, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Oh, so there's two kinds of suffering. Sometimes we suffer because we've done what's right. And sometimes we suffer because it's our own fault, because we've done what's wrong. And when that happens, guess what? That's on us. That's not Jesus' fault. You know what? If you drive 90 miles per hour on the way to church and you get a ticket, you are not being persecuted for trying to go to church. <laughs> You're receiving justice. Okay? I mean, can we just be honest? That's what you get. But he says if we suffer for Christ, we suffer for doing right, if we suffer for the sake of the gospel, as gospel citizens, then we'll be rewarded. Gospel citizens are called to being willing to suffer for Christ and his kingdom. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about rights in America, and I love our rights. I gotta tell you, I love all sorts of things of our rights in America, though. The right to free speech, right to a, a free and open press that's not part of the government that we shouldn't be. All sorts of great things we have. But for gospel citizens, the discussion is not about rights. It's about responsibilities. One of which is to be ready to suffer for Jesus' sake. When I was in Ukraine teaching some years back, it's weird to see pictures on TV of places that I've been Whoa, I stood in that square in Kiev. That is pretty freaky. You know, bombing it. Anyway, when I was in Ukraine teaching some years ago, 
There's a gentleman I told you about before who spent 20 years in prison under Soviet rule for preaching the gospel. That, that's suffering for Jesus' sake. That time seems to be returning in Russia. That time exists already in many, many countries throughout the world. Now, rights are awesome. Nobody's coming through the door here going to haul me away for preaching, preaching the gospel. Praise God. That's awesome. We are, we are very blessed people. But rights or no rights, gospel citizens have the responsibility of being ready and willing to suffer for the gospel when necessary. Last one. One of the trades that is definitely in short supply these days. And that is gospel citizens are humble. Verses 3 and 4. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, you know, there's a lot of funny ideas about humility out there. On one end is this idea sort of of humility is for suckers. That's the mentality that says everybody should really just be really proud of themselves and full of self-worth and think that we're all just God's little gift to the world. sometimes called worm theology. Some of you may have grown up in churches that had a lot of worm theology. Now this has nothing to do with fishing, or even being fishers of men. It has to do with the idea that we're basically all like worms. And we're so sinful and so horrible that we're, we're just worthless. We're worm people. In fact, Isaac Watts, in his otherwise wonderful hymn, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, promotes this concept in the line that says, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Now some of you have maybe never sang the song that way because in our modern hymnals it changes the word worm to one, for such a one as I. But in the original song, it's for as such a worm as I. Okay? Now even though I disagree with your theology, stop changing the hymn. <laughs> See, some of you think I'm not a traditionalist. How many times in band practice do I rave when they change the words in a hymn? Do I not? I do. I do. Renee finally has to tell me something quietly tonight. Can we just practice at 9 30 and the after the song? Because you've given four sermons on how they come. It's not that bad. But I don't like when they change the words in Yeah, we skipped that verse. Okay. I, I reject that theology. Christ did not die for worms. If we were valuable enough for, to God that he sent his own son for our redemption, then we are not worms. So real humility has two parts. First, we need to see ourselves rightly before God. We're not a worm. We're someone bought with a price. We're not our own. We are Christ's. It's not about me. About him. We're people who were once lost, but through grace in our Lord Jesus have been found. Not because we did something so awesome, but because he did something for us. Humility puts Jesus at the center. That's what it means. 
putting Jesus at the center. Gospel citizens are Christ-centered. That's the first part, humility. Christ-centered, not me-centered. Not about me, but him. Secondly, we see ourselves rightly in light of others. So the first part, Christ-centered, is I see myself rightly in light of God. Second part is I see myself rightly in light of others. And that's what Paul's commenting on here. Gospel citizens are not only Christ-centered, they are others-oriented. We consider others as more important than ourselves. Now notice Paul never says you can't look to your own interests. Paul doesn't say, because that person is poor, don't pay your mortgage and lose your house to help that person. He doesn't say that. But overall, he wants our orientation to be toward other people. We are to be more selfless and less selfish. Just ask yourself, where have I chosen others over self in the last week? Just ask yourself that question and think about it. Where have I cho chosen others over self this last week? You may or may not like the answer, but it will tell you something about your humility. Are you seeing others rightly, seeing yourself rightly in the light of others? All of us who are followers of Jesus are citizens of his gospel kingdom. And because of that, Paul tells us we are called to certain lifestyle traits that mark us as citizens of Christ's kingdom. Gospel citizens are unified around Jesus, whatever else your differences might be. Fearless and willing to suffer if necessary for the gospel and for our world. And gospel citizens exhibit true humility by being Christ-centered and others-oriented. Whatever country we might be citizens of, all of us who love Jesus are to stand out as gospel citizens of Christ's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us that through Jesus, we have been transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We've gone from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of Christ. Our allegiance has changed from self and the things of this world to our Lord Jesus. And because of that, we are now citizens of God's kingdom instead of limited to things of this world. And so, Father, help our lives, help us to be marked by the things of unity and fearlessness and willingness to suffer true humility as citizens of the kingdom that through us the gospel will go forth and that we would stand out as shining light.